So yesterday I got the, the text from Gary saying that I've got a serious case of man flu, and, which is pretty awful. Any guy here would agree that, that that's, um, that's pretty bad. Um, and um, he said, I'm not going to be able to preach tomorrow. And I thought, okay, what am I going to talk about? What shall I do? And as I was, as I was praying yesterday, I was saying, Lord, what, what should I do? What, what, what's right? I was led to this passage in Genesis. And it's the passage where we find Jacob... We've all heard of Jacob, a um, prominent figure towards the end of Genesis, and he's been, he's been sent to go and, and find a wife. He's walking through the fields one day, and he sees sheep gathering around a well. He sees a young shepherdess, and he helps move the lid so that they can get water to, feed the, to water the livestock. And he notices she's beautiful. And then someone explains that her father is Laban. And Jacob thinks, hang on, that's, that's my uncle. I knew I had family in these parts. So you're Rachel. You're my cousin. Oh, my goodness. And she says, I must go and tell my father that Jacob's here. She goes off and tells her father, and Jacob goes and is welcomed into the house, his extended family. And he works there for a long time. And he looks after the livestock. He oversees the shepherds. And eventually, Laban says, Jacob, regardless of whether you're family or not, no man should work for no wages. What, what can I give you? Now, Jacob is a warm-blooded male, and he's noticed Rachel. And so he says to Jacob, uh, sorry, he says to Laban, well, actually, I, I think your daughter is beautiful. I'd like to marry her. Laban says... Okay, here's the deal. Work for me for seven years, and after that, I will bless your marriage. Jacob thinks, okay, okay, that's fine, that's that's a good enough deal. So he works and he works and he works for seven years, and they pass by, but we're told that because he was so in love, he was so besotted with Rachel that it felt like just a matter of days. Romantic, isn't it? And then the wedding day comes, and we're told that that everybody in the area had been invited to a great feast. They'd been pulled into this great feast. Everyone was celebrating. And then Jacob, he'd, he'd been drinking, he'd been eating, and he went off and he went to consummate the marriage. Except, Laban had two daughters. And the other one wasn't quite Rachel. Wasn't quite as beautiful. And he thinks... Jacob's had a few drinks. He's gone off into a dark place. I'm going to send his bride. But I'm not going to send his bride that he's expecting. I'm going to send my less desirable daughter. And I'm going to allow them to go through the wedding night and to wake up tomorrow and they will be husband and wife. And then the less attractive daughter that I didn't think I'd ever, I'd ever see marrying. That problem's solved, sorted. And so that's what he does. He sends her off, and the next morning, Jacob wakes up, he takes one look, and he says, Leah! That's her name. Leah, what are you doing here? He goes running off to Laban. He says, you've deceived me. How dare you? I can't believe you've done this. And Laban says, oh, <laughs> didn't you know? In, in these parts, you, you marry off your eldest daughter first. If you, if you want Rachel, you're going to have to work another seven years, but you've got one wife already. 
And so Jacob works another seven years, and eventually he gets the bride he wants. Now, that's a story that we read in Genesis. But tonight, I just want us to flip that around slightly. Let's tell the story slightly differently. There was once a girl called Leah. And she lived with her family, happy enough upbringing, comfortable. But she had a problem. And her problem was her younger sister. Because her younger sister was stunning. Every time a younger sister walked down the streets, men stopped and looked. They went to carry her bags. They went to to make sure that she had food and drink. They looked after her because she was beautiful. She turned heads. And Leah never got that because when she looked at herself in the mirror, she just saw a very plain face looking back. In fact, Scripture gives a description of these two girls. It's not exactly flattering for Leah. The author of Genesis recalls Leah. How should I describe Leah? Well, um, she, um, sort of the most redeeming feature, what sticks in the mind. Um, Leah had had weak eyes. That's the nicest thing you could think of saying. Weak eyes. Now, we don't know whether she was very short-sighted and, and, and squinted a lot. We don't know whether she had a, um, a condition that was not uncommon in those days, from living in, in desert conditions, very bright sunlight and a lot of dust in the air, could lead to a, a sort of gloopy eyes. It's pretty unattractive, to be honest. It could have meant that, or it could simply have meant that compared to Rachel, Leah had not the spark, not the... Not the passion, not the frisky, lively nature that Rachel had. It could simply mean Leah was normal. The author of Genesis says, But Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I think in modern parlance, Rachel was hot. And Jacob, of course recognises this, and he falls in love with Rachel, just like every other guy that she'd ever met. And Leah was another bystander, once again, another man who'd come into the, 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 the circumstances she found herself in and immediately looked straight through her and saw the younger sister. And she has that nagging sense of self-doubt. She has that nagging sense of being somehow lacking in something. And it gets even worse, because after seven years of Jacob working for her father, and the agreement everyone was aware of was that he was going to marry Rachel suddenly, on the day of this feast, when everybody's been invited in, everybody's been been called to come and celebrate this momentous occasion, this big family party was taking place, and that night, her father says, you go. We're not told whether she argued or, or how she felt, but she, was, she would have been aware of what was going on. But Father, he doesn't want me. You, you go. You do as I say. So she goes, knowing that her father has just seen a, a way to cheat himself out of responsibility, 
a way to palm her off to someone. She's suddenly realising that, wow, I'm so plain, I'm so lacking, I'm so inadequate, even my own father wants to get rid of me. And so she goes and she lies with the man that is meant to be marrying her sister. And the next morning she wakes up. And the man that she's now married to is so disgusted when he looks at her that he goes running straight to her father and says, how dare you? And so now not only her own father has rejected her, but her own husband has made it absolutely clear that she's not wanted. But of course, Jacob sticks around. He's still in love with Rachel. That's not changed. He can't help the way he feels. And for seven years longer, Leah has to wake up day after day knowing that her father doesn't want her, knowing that her husband doesn't want her. She bears him children. There's something telling in the fact that we're told Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She, in fact, gave birth to four sons. And the names are significant. Because you could say, Tom, there's a lot of guesswork in what you've just said. If you stick to scripture without trying to pad it out with narrative, then um, I'm not sure you're right. Fair enough. But let's take a look at the names that scripture says she gave her children. You see, first of all, there's no mention that Jacob had anything to do with naming these children. We're told that Leah named her children. If Jacob felt differently about her to how I've just portrayed, if Jacob was actually a sympathetic, loving husband, then he would have had a role to play. He would have played a significant part. He would have named his own sons. But instead, we are told that Leah gave the names. The first son, she called Reuben, which means the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Some interpretations say the Lord has looked upon my misery. A loving husband sitting down with his wife even if the relationship's a little bit difficult, what are we going to call this beautiful baby boy? I was going to call him Reuben. But what does that mean? Well, it means the Lord has looked upon my, my, my affliction, my misery. What? Don't be ridiculous. Let's call him something happy. Come on, let's, let's, you know, let's call him Gary. That's a nice bouncy name. That's full of fun. Let's go with that. But there's no question. Leah named the first son, Reuben. The Lord has seen my affliction, my misery. And she says, I'm going to call him this because surely the Lord has seen my misery and surely now that I've born a son, my husband will love me. Leah is craving the love that she wants from her husband. But it doesn't come. 
she conceives a second time. And she gives birth to another son. And this time he is named Simeon. Names were important in those days. Scripture often recalls what names meant. Simeon means the Lord has heard that I am hated. The Lord has heard that I am hated. This is why we can be sure how Leah was feeling at the time. Because names were so important, people picked names as, a, as, a, as almost sort of a, a futuristic narrative of how they wanted their child to live, how they wanted to be perceived, how they wanted people to see them. Often it was names that were powerful, that, were, that suggested they were leaders or, or beautiful or strong. But no. No, not for Leah. The Lord's heard that I'm hated by my father, by my husband, by my sister, because actually she wants to be in the situation I am, bearing sons for Jacob. Everyone around me hates me. So I'm going to name my child Simeon. Again, we're told she conceived. She gave birth to another son. She says, now at least, at least, my husband will become attached to me in some way. She's given up on him loving her. At least he might somehow find some sort of bond, some sort of attachment. Surely, surely. And so she calls him Levi, which meant attached, simple. She's given up on love. She just wants some sort of relationship, someone to at least acknowledge her. And finally, she conceives for a fourth time and she gives birth to a son. And by this time, she's given up on even the attachment, even the, the, the desperate longing for someone to be a friend, for someone to reach out to her. She is just empty. She calls this one Judah, which means, I will praise the Lord. You might think that's a slightly odd passage to share at a youth service, and I can understand that. But you see, I think Leah is one of the saddest stories in Scripture. Because that isolation, that desperation, I can't really relate to personally. The lowest point I ever had was when I was in my teenage years, and... I had really, really bad acne. And there was a friend of mine I used to hang around with a lot, and people used to call him Super Ted because he hung around with Spotty. I don't know if any of you remember the Super Ted cartoon, but he had a sidekick called Spotty. Um, Pizza Face was another one that I used to get called on a daily basis, and I hated it. I hated it. But compared to what Leah went through, my goodness, that was nothing. In this town, in the past three years since I've started in ministry, there's been four teenage suicides. There's been four people who have felt in their teenage years that the world has nothing for them, that they are not wanted, that life is just not worth living. Four. That breaks my heart. That is absolutely horrific. 
It's difficult to help in those situations. But as a church, we can offer something that the rest of the world cannot offer. You see, as a church, the reason that I encouraged you earlier to share stories with our young people, to empower them, to tell them that, look, whatever is going on, don't worry, it will be okay. God does have a plan. He is in this. Even if you can't see him right now, God is with you. The reason that I implore you to do that is because as a church, we have something unique to offer to anybody, not just our youth, but anybody going through the depths of darkness. And that thing is hope. That thing is the hope that comes with knowing God. You see, when Leah gives birth to that fourth son, she has she has given up. She, the longing for love from her own father, the longing for, for someone to reach out to her, the longing for her own husband to love her. She's given up on all of that. So what is the one thing that carries her through this pit of desperate sadness? It is God. When all else fails, she says, I will praise the Lord. Scripture says we should give thanks when we go through tough times because it builds our our faith. It strengthens us. That's not always an easy message to hear because when we're going through those times, God feels like he's a million miles away, but I can tell you he's not. He's right there with you, holding you, loving you, willing you to turn to him. The story of Leah is a story of someone who refuses, refuses to blame God, to turn away from God, to give up. Instead, when the world gives up on her, she turns to God. That's when her faith carries her through. God is the only person she can cry out to, and so she doesn't just cry out to him and say, Lord, why? What's going on? Come on! She says, I will praise my God. I will lift his name. I will exalt him because I believe that he has got me. He is with me in this. And regardless of what the rest of the world says about me, I might be plain, I might have dodgy eyes, I might even be ugly, but God loves me. God loves me. And that is what we can offer people. That is why the church is so important in society. That is why it's so important that we share our faith, that we share the love of Jesus Christ in this world. Because if we don't, then then hope is lost. That psalm I read earlier on, it said, don't don't put your hope in in mortal men. Because when they die, their, their plans die with them. Their promises die with them. Nothing lasts forever except the thing that is above time, above the rules of nature that we are governed by. And that thing is God. That thing is hope. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the love that got Leah through the situation she found herself in. And that is the love that we can be secured by. That is the love that we can turn to, that we can say, Lord, I do not know why you're putting me through this, but I turn to you faithfully. I trust in you. Because I look around me and I see my whole church family and I've heard the stories of people who have been in a similar position to me and they've told me that you got them through it. So through the experiences of my, my, all the saints that Paul writes about, that's you and me, that's the church family. Through the experience of all the saints, we can be carried through whatever struggles we face in life. So every time that we feel rejected by friends, every time that we feel ugly standing next to someone who's better looking, Every time that we just look at ourselves and we think, I'm, I've failed academically or physically I'm not good enough or, or I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just rubbish. Everything about me. Do you know what? God looks at you and he says, you're treasure. You are better than pure gold. You are absolutely brilliant. And I've got a plan for you. So come with me. Keep trusting in me. Because we've got a future together, you and me. You don't need the rest of the world. You need me. And if you follow me, you'll be just fine. Let's pray. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, we cannot fathom the love that you have for us. And Lord, we, we fall to our knees and give thanks that never, ever do you let us go. Never do you give up on us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can turn to a story that, that took place thousands of years ago, and we can find relevance and truth in there for for today. Father, we give thanks for the story of Leah. We give thanks for the way that she refused to, to do anything other than praise and worship you, because she knew that no matter what the world treated her like, you treated her like treasure. You loved her. And Father, we give thanks that you love each and every one of us. That love that we simply cannot begin to imagine. We benefit from that. You bless us every day in so many ways. And Father, we are humbled when we come into your presence and we acknowledge what you've done for us. So Lord, forgive us for the times that we don't follow your path when we we have our heads turned by the ways of the world. But help us to remember that whatever our circumstances, we have hope that is steadfast and certain. We have Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in that name, we say, Amen.